My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, I am in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah at the OC Tanner uh, corporate headquarters, I guess you'd call it, with uh, Steve Wilwright. How are you, Steve? Very good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have this interview. Uh, you have some history here with OC Tanner. Uh, I do, in fact. Yeah, wait, <laughs> I've where? known them for a long time. And, and you serve on their board, is that right? I serve on the board. I'm actually emeritus. I got too old. <laughs> But they must have thought I had something useful to offer because they yeah. continued me on. Well, that's great. That's awesome. Well, we'll get into some of that history. And, and maybe let's, you know, you've had to spend some time back east at, at Harvard and, and have all, uh, quite a dynamic career and uh, as it relates to MBA uh, students and individuals everywhere. So where does this journey of you know, in the business world start, or maybe it starts with your undergrad. I don't know. It actually started with my parents. Okay. So my dad ran a printing company. We used to print yearbooks back in the day when everybody had a big yearbook huh. and we printed all the major universities and all the Utah high schools. Uh, and I grew up working in the business here in Utah, here in Utah, here in Salt Lake. And while I was at the U, when I got to be a senior, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I'd majored in math and loved science and math. And I, one day my mom said, you know, I've been reading about this thing called an MBA, and I think that's perfect for you. <laughs> she said, and I know you've always wanted to go to Stanford, so that's where I think you ought to go get an MBA. Nice. So I applied and they accepted me. Now, why Stanford? I mean, you say you always wanted to go there. When did that start? Uh, that started as an undergraduate. Hmm. I actually applied to both Caltech and uh, Stanford as an undergraduate. Hmm. Didn't make the Caltech cut, got on the wait list at Stanford, but I, we couldn't possibly afford it. And I oh. said, I think pre-mission, I'll just go to the U. <laughs> and then <laughs> I call. stayed to finish, obviously, yeah. after my mission. Nice, and where'd you go on your mission? Went to Scotland, the oh, North wow. Scottish mission then, uh-huh. and then they recombined it, and I spent the last six weeks under David Haight, who was oh, yeah. to become an apostle. Yeah. Uh, working in the office in Scotland. That's great. So it came over your mission and you're still engaged in that, that business uh, path with education and things? Well, when I came home from my mission, I didn't, I didn't think I was going into business. Mm, I thought okay. I was going into math and science. Oh, okay. So I actually interviewed with both Boeing and IBM. And in the 60s, People will forget this, but we had a 10-year run of incredible growth in the U.S. And they were hiring anybody who could breathe and had a pulse. (laughs) And so I got great offers. But I was being recruited. I didn't understand this at the time, but I was recruited by HR people. And they didn't know what I was going to do. Well, I couldn't find anybody who could tell me what I was going to do. And that's why I went to my mom and said, Mom, 
how can I take a job where they can't tell me what I'm going to do? Because <laughs> I don't know whether I'll like it. Yeah. And so she said, get an MBA. Okay. And so you were graduated at this point with your undergrad? No, no. Oh, okay. No, right. I was still a senior. Gotcha. But they were starting to recruit you. They, they were recruiting okay. me as a senior in college. And the offers were spectacular for those days. Uh-huh. And right. I thought, wow, this is good. But it, if they couldn't tell me what I was going to do, how would I know whether I'd like it? Yeah. So I said, no, thanks. So did you go straight into applying for Stanford and went to yes. MBA school there? In those days, just about everybody went straight, unless you'd been in the military and then you did your military service before you went. Oh, okay. So almost everybody was 22, 23, 24 when I went to MBA school. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and did, you, did you enjoy that, uh, that phase of life? Oh, we loved it. I was married. I got married in my senior year at the U. And so uh, we went off to Stanford as an adventure. Although I'll have to say my wife's a great sport. (laughs) She was game, but she'd never been further than San Francisco or Denver from Salt Lake. And so she was homesick. And we still (laughs) joke about it. She used to cry and shake the bed at night. (laughs) And of course, I'm thinking, what have I done? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And uh, what have I done to her? But within about two or three months, she said, I can do this. Yeah. I'm going to stop that other stuff. And she was fine. Yeah. But it was a physical illness for the first few months. Wow. Wow. So going into MBA school, I mean, then you sort of mentally shifted that you're you're a business guy at that point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when I started in the MBA program, I thought... Yeah, business, I'll go into analytics. And then I switched after one year into the PhD program. And my major initially was operations research, Hmm. which is math and science. It was just like what I'd done as an undergrad. Oh, interesting. And and I really liked it. I mean, I enjoyed it. But then I met some professors at uh, Stanford in the business school, uh, Hal Eyring and a fellow named Ed Chow. And they really got me interested in business. And I said, no, strategy is better than OR. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and Hal Eyring being President Eyring now. President right? Eyring now. <laughs> Just to clarify, there's yeah, a right. few, there's few was, Hal Eyrings that have been in his yeah, family. Yeah, he trip. and Ed Shaw were both associate professors. They decided when I'd been there, I just finished my first year of the PhD program. So I was two years into Stanford. And they decided to start a new PhD concentration in strategy Hmm. and about five of us raised our hands and said we'll join you PhD students so they were off and running wow wow and and that's where you spent the the next few years that's where I spent the next few years nice and so you left uh, you you got an MBA at Stanford and then continued on right with your PhD there yeah so I actually (laughs) got them concurrently in the end oh wow yeah so so I spent four years at Stanford and, and left with a Ph.D. in MBA. Yeah. Yes. Oh, great. Yeah. So where did your life take you after that? Well, I decided that Ph.D. programs don't teach you how to teach. They teach you how to do research. That's their focus. Uh-huh. And I thought, this is scary if I'm going to go be a teacher for the next 30 or 40 years. And that's why I wanted a Ph.D. was so I could teach. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, two things. One is I've got to get to the school that will train me on how to be a teacher But that's scary because Harvard was by far the best teaching school in MBA in the MBA world at Mm -hmm. the time. And I said, so what I ought to do is have a transition. 
So INSEAD, a business school in France, came along, was interviewing at Stanford and said, we'll hire you for a year. And I said, sure. <laughs> Another adventure for Another you and your adventure. wife. <laughs> but I said, I'll only take the job for a year if I have a job I can come back to in the US. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed in both the US knowing that I had this French opportunity if gotcha. I wanted it. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so you headed to France for a year? So we headed to France wow. the first year out. I taught in an MBA program at INSEAD. It was terrific. It was much less pressure. Uh, I taught statistics and applied math, basically. Uh, we called it managerial economics in those days, mm -hmm. but it was more statistics and applied math yeah. in business. Yeah, yeah. And, and you had a job secured uh, for in the U.S. after that year? Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> in fact, that was very interesting because I, I didn't actually have an opportunity at Harvard other than uh, Hal Eyring and Ed Shaw, these two associate professors, had both been at Harvard previously, and Harvard wanted them back because they were the best applied math teachers. Hmm. And so they said, well, we're not coming. We have other things we're doing, but here's this guy that we've got as a student. So they basically set it <laughs> nice. up. I stopped by, I was interviewing at Dartmouth, uh, and that had gone very well. And the Harvard guy said, well, just come by while you're near. Uh -huh. nearby and I said sure and I met with half a dozen professors one-on-one -on -one, didn't give a seminar didn't do any things you normally do and then flew back to California where I was finishing my PhD and the the Harvard guys I thought well nothing's gonna happen with that and in fact I thought I'd probably take the Dartmouth job uh -huh. and then the uh, Hal came to me one day President Eyring, as yes, we right. all know him, and he said, what have you heard from Harvard? And I said, nothing. He said, really? I said, yeah, and I've got to decide in a, in a day or two about Dartmouth. He said, don't do anything yet. He says, let me make one call. So both Hal and Ed, who were good friends, they, were, they had both started a business on the side while being professors, uh -huh. and I was working part-time for him in the business while finishing my PhD. Okay. And so he's still at Stanford. He hasn't he's gone still to, at Stanford. to they Rexburg yet. He hasn't gone to Rexburg yet. <laughs> uh -huh. And they, they both called apparently. And the next thing I knew, I had a job offer. And I thought, well, I'll just ask him, is it okay if I go to INSEAD? Well, Harvard had actually started the school in INSEAD. They'd been kind of the co-sponsor hmm. to set it up because they wanted international MBA programs built on the case method. And so they said, sure, we support them. You go off there. They actually didn't have a class assignment for me uh -huh. that year. So they, because they I, they'd time, hired yeah. me late. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so they send me off. They said, yeah, you go there and then come back in a year. Oh, nice. And that's what I did. That's what you did. <laughs> and then that began a long career at Harvard. That, yeah, although I left after about nine years and went back oh, okay. to Stanford as a professor. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That okay. had to do more with tenure, though. Oh, okay. I see. I see. And, uh, uh, you know, I want to get into some of these principles here in a bit, but is there, just to sum up sort of the, that career path, putting it into perspective. So you went uh, back to, to Stanford after about a decade at 
in yeah, Boston. So, and so we moved to Boston seven times in our life. Oh my goodness, wow. <laughs> we moved from France. I came back and worked two years after we'd been in Boston. I came back and worked in Salt Lake for my dad's printing company because he was sure I needed to take over. I wasn't. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and so I took a leave and uh, Harvard was very agreeable. I spent a year in the business. I said, it's not me, it's not what I want to do. My dad agreed. And so then we went back to Harvard. Then in 79, that's when you come up for tenure okay. in this system. And Stanford offered me tenure at that point. And I said, well, this is easy. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> and we, we'd really enjoyed Stanford. Uh, California was a very different place then than it is uh -huh, now. <laughs> and so we went back to Stanford and uh, then in about 85, uh, I really felt like our family did better in Boston. And mm -hmm. I had these discussions with my wife and she said, well, why don't we go as a visitor and just see how it works? Because our youngest, our middle daughter was going to be a sophomore in high school. Well, that's a tough time to move kids. Mm -hmm. So we went back to Boston for a year and uh, it was great. I, my colleagues that I did most of my joint writing with were at Harvard anyway. And I thought, this is great. But at the end of a year, it didn't work for our daughter. Hmm. And we took a little family vote and I said, what do you think? And she said, Dad, I've tried. It didn't work. And I said, fine, we'll go back to Stanford. Hmm. Well, two years later, when she graduated from Palo Alto High School, I said to my wife, <laughs> how about now? Uh -huh. And uh, she finally decided she'd pray about it, felt the spirit and said, OK. And then we went back to Harvard. Wow. And we were there until 2000 when we got called by President Hinckley to preside over a mission. Oh, wow. And where was that mission? That mission was in London. Oh, great. The England-London mission. So the north of the Thames, there was a London south and a London north, uh -huh. basically. I was in the north. Well, that's great. And so it just about landed in your old mission, but not, not yeah. quite. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Got close. And, and then we actually ended up, Kim came, Kim Clark, uh -huh. who was a very good friend, and recruited us back to Harvard. I hadn't planned to go back. We'd sold our house. You we thought were, you were retired we were, at that point? Or? We thought we were retired at that uh -huh. point. And uh, I, he told me, he said, I really think you need to come back. And I, he came three times in our third year of our mission. And I said, well, he must really want me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, could I have my choice of what I do? And I said, there are two things I want to do. I said, I want to be the owner's rep on on-campus construction because I'd been the owner's rep for Kim before my mission on the student center at the Harvard Business School. And I loved construction. I said, this is great. This is right up my alley. So, so maybe, I don't, I'm not familiar with what that position is. How would you explain oh, it? The, the owner's rep is basically the person who meets with the architect and makes sure the architect gives you the building that you want. So if you're building a house, you're the owner's rep. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you're going to limit it. And right. You know what you want and don't want. You know, and architects have ideas of their own, and they want to build things that are that they can be proud of. Right. But it may not but be you practical. Gotta, yeah. You got to balance it. It may not be practical. I yeah. mean, things like that. Gotcha. And I said, so I'd love to learn more about construction. And I knew they were going to redo Baker Library, 
which is kind of the keystone building on the Harvard campus, mm. the business school campus. And I said, yeah, I'd like to be the owner's rep on that building. Mm. And he agreed. And then I said, and I'd like to be the chairman of the publishing company because I think we can do better internationally. Now, what I didn't know is that was all the Lord's plan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he knew what I needed to learn how to do because of what he was going to have me do. And that was great. Yeah. But I didn't know that. But yeah. So we went back for three years. He, Kim left in 2005, and I decided that I needed to stay another year. Wouldn't be a good idea for two, the two LDS guys <laughs> that were in leadership to both leave the same time. Uh-huh. And so I left a year later, and then we ended up going on a mission to BYU-Idaho, where Kim was the president. <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he facilitate that? Or? He did facilitate that, oh, although cool. that's not why we went. I mean, the real reason was President Hinckley had planned to call us in 2006, but he had colon cancer that fall. Most mm. people didn't know that's what he had. Mm. So he was incapacitated. And when I left Harvard, uh, this, that time in 2006, President Monson and Elder Scott, Richard Scott was the head of the Church Education Committee. And they, dis, they put their heads together and said, what if he takes another assignment? What if somebody in the church asks him to do a full-time thing, like, you know, whatever they might do? Uh-huh. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? Because then President Hinckley would say, well, wait a minute, now what do I do? Yeah. And so they said, we'll call him. So as a senior missionary couple, President Monson, who was a counselor to President Hinckley, called us, calls me on the phone, and he said, we want you to uh, be a missionary at BYU-Idaho. Well, we knew Kim and Sue were there. I said, sure. I said, but I need to ask you a question. I said, how long? And he said, indeterminate. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, indeterminate. And I assumed that meant a long time. Uh-huh. So I said, well, I need to ask you another question because I know my wife's going to ask. Should we buy a home in Idaho? I mean, yeah, you know, sure. if we're going to be there an indeterminate time. And he's, he thought about it for about 10 seconds. And then he said, I wouldn't. I said, that's all I need. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So we went to Idaho. And then partway through that first year, President Hinckley was better, and he called me. And he said, we want you to go to BYU-Hawaii to be the president. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, BYU-Hawaii serves all of Asia and the Pacific Basin, Polynesia and all the islands. And that's really where that additional three years of experience came into play because BYU-Hawaii had a campus that was 50 years old, hadn't had any construction done for 50 years, and everything was falling apart. And you were the man for the job. Sea salt is really tough on buildings. Mm -hmm. And then uh, 30% of the students came from Asia. Well, that's what I'd done in the publishing company. I'd actually been to China probably five times in those three years with someone else, a Chinese national who worked for us. And we'd actually set up 
HBS publishing in China mm. and in Japan and Korea. So all of that was preparatory to go to BYU Hawaii. Wow, that's awesome. What a, I mean, it's, with hindsight, it's amazing to kind of see these miracles yeah. that you didn't think were... The Lord were, had yeah. a plan, and I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing we weren't following my plan. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, and so how, how long uh, were you there at BYU Hawaii? We were there eight years, left in 2015. But in we didn't leave until July, but in February, when we were in Salt Lake for a meeting, President Iring called now a counselor to, uh -huh, uh -huh. to President Monson and said, we want you to go to Boston and be the temple president, but you can't tell anybody until we announce the new president of BYU Hawaii, which won't be until May. Oh, yeah, nice. So nice. we couldn't tell our kids or anything. But so in November, we, we left Hawaii in July, end of July, and in November we were in Boston for three more years. Nice. And that was the seventh and last time you yeah, went to Boston. Yeah, that was the last time. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Wow. We wow. just visit now. <laughs> Good, I bet. And it's a beautiful place to visit, I'm sure. It so. is. Wow, what a what a uh, career and what an journey adventure. and adventure, right? <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure there's some homesickness days to follow throughout that adventure. So that's all awesome. the homesickness got done in that first couple of months. You got it Stanford. out of the system. Thank huh? goodness. Because yeah. <laughs> little did she know the, the moving that was going to be happening, right? Yep. Wow. Well, th that's. Uh, Phenomenal, Steve. Just so inspiring to hear that. And uh, as, as we uh, typically do in these interviews, I've asked you to prepare a handful of principles that maybe we could talk about and uh, feed into some of the, or inspire some of those MBA students or alumni listening. And so let's, let's go through these. Uh, the first principle you mentioned is anchoring to a personal identity consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Expound yeah. on that. So, uh, you know, as a young man, I always thought I want to be a missionary. I would love to be happily married. I want my wife to be a partner in every respect. And, you know, so it's our life together. And I always viewed it as, yeah, I want to find somebody who's going to bring out the best in me. And uh, I'll bring out the best in her and we'll be better together than we would be alone. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, I found a person like that. That's Margaret. Awesome. <laughs> Margaret Steele was her maiden name. And so I'd always thought, yeah, I want a family. I want to be happy. I want a successful career. And so I really thought of myself, I'm a son of God. I have the priesthood. I'm going to be a head of household. And with all the responsibilities go with that. And obviously, I want a successful career that I enjoy. And that's why I'd gone into teaching, because I learned how to teach on my mission and loved it. Hmm. And I said, teaching, noble profession, I'd love doing that. Yeah. And then business was where it worked out that it was best for me. Yeah. So that was how I saw myself. And in fact, this was brought into sharp focus that that's very different than some people. When we got called to go to London, now, I don't know if they'd ever had anybody go to be mission president and leave a tenured senior faculty position. Yeah, wow. So at the time, I was serving as the head of the MBA program. I was a senior associate dean at Harvard. And obviously, I went and talked to Kim about it. And Kim thought it was great. Uh, and I knew it was going to be, it was the right thing to do. And so I, on the last day of class, 
I was going to announce to my students, this is in December, I'd been called in November, my wife and I to be preside over a mission. We didn't know where it was. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're not paid. You don't know where it is, but you're leaving your position. <laughs> they think you're crazy, and, right? <laughs> and so I sent, I sent an email to my colleagues the same day I was going to announce in class because I wanted people to think of this. This is the most positive thing that could ever happen. Uh -huh. But, you know, they don't understand it. Right. Um, yeah. So I, one of my colleagues was out of town. In fact, he worked for me in the MBA program. And I'll just call his name Fred. That's okay. not his real name. But, okay. um, and Fred was out of town, didn't see the email for a few days, came back. And on a Monday morning, he calls me. And he said two things. He said, is it true? And I said, well, if you're talking about my going to be a mission president, for my church, yes, that's true. And his second question was, are you crazy? <laughs> and I said, Fred, I don't think I'm crazy. He said, we need to talk. Now, this is interesting. I mean, this is a colleague I knew. He's a good Christian man. But, you know, I thought. But he was very concerned about he this. He was very concerned. He, he thought he needed to straighten me out. Yeah. And so I said, Okay, Fred, why don't we have lunch together? We'll just grab a sandwich and sit in your office. Uh, I'll come meet you. Tell me what kind of sandwich you want. And so I went and sat in his office. And he, he started out by saying, he says, you know, I've known a handful of LDS people. I really like them. They do a great job. And they've all been very rational, conservative. He said, and this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. And... And I said, well, tell me why you think it's crazy. He then proceeded to tell me that all of his life, Harvard had been his goal. And in fact, his lifetime goal was the position I had. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Huh. And, you know, he talked about he'd been a Harvard undergraduate. He'd been a Harvard PhD. He'd worked for Harvard. He was now working in the MBA program in a sub-role for me. And the th thing he really wanted was to be the head of the MBA program. That was his identity. That's how he described it. And I said, well, that's very interesting, Fred. I said, let me tell you how I see myself. I love Harvard. I love teaching. I love doing what I'm doing. And I think I've been reasonably good at it. But I said, that's not me. I'm a father, I'm a priesthood holder, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I said, and that's who I really am. Hmm. And we had this very interesting discussion. He asked me a whole bunch of questions about that because he'd never met it. He'd never had a deep conversation with somebody about what's your real identity. Hmm. And his identity was clearly tied up to a place a position, those kind of things. And I thought, yeah. interesting. Yeah. And then in the, at the end of lunch, he said, I said, Fred, do you understand? This is who I am. This is a great blessing and honor. I said, of course I'm going to do it. And I was called by a prophet of God, somebody I s support and accept as speaking for the Lord. He said, well, I kind of get it. He said, I could never do that. I said, you would if you believed and knew what I know. Yeah. And wow. that's how we left it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, my class, I told the class, I said, uh, here's what we're gonna do. We don't know where it will be, but I said, after this semester, next semester, as soon as I know where it is, I will schedule a pizza lunch. I'll provide pizza. My <laughs> wife and I will come and you can ask us any question you want about what we're gonna do, because we'll then know where we're going. Uh -huh. And so we did that. Oh, cool. And about uh, 70 of 85 students, 70 of the 85 came to the lunch. Wow. And they asked every question under the sun. Wow, what an opportunity. But it was terrific. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. fact, I had three uh, LDS MBA students in my class that fall, and we ended up having several discussions afterwards with people that were interested. Oh, so, cool. That's yeah. awesome. And, and I love that principle of, of just being clear on your identity as you go, because in competitive business field, you can sort of lose that identity before, before you know it, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and sort of anchoring to that identity, and then that really makes some of these decisions Much a easier. lot easier, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think identity is such a powerful doctrine that, um, you know, our Father in Heaven is always pushing us towards yeah. who we really are and, yeah. and why, right? Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, next principle is pursuing a life Lifetime of consistent daily habits, prayer, scripture, exercise, etc. How has that been manifest in your life? Well, I, I grew up always reading the scriptures every day yeah. from about ninth grade seminary on. And uh, I love the scriptures. I especially love the Book of Mormon. Uh, I love being a missionary. I read all the standard works as a missionary. I read every church book I could that was on the list of approved uh -huh, sure. <laughs> as a missionary. And I loved it. In yeah. fact, my wife used to, first 10 years of marriage, she would always, she'd, she'd ask me, how do you know that? When something about the church would go. I said, because I learned it on my mission. Oh, wow. And yeah. that, she, she used to kid me about that. Boy, you must have really studied. I said, I did study. Yeah. I studied a lot. And I love studying. I mean, I love reading and understanding things. So, you know, in terms of, the habits of prayer. The other habit I had is I decided if it's worthy of my attention, given my identity, then it, I'm sure it's worthy of the Lord's attention. Hmm. So I would pray about everything. I never took an exam I didn't pray about. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I, I never taught a class I didn't pray about. Wow. Uh, and it just, it's a habit, you yeah. know? But I also decided as a habit, I needed exercise. And so I, you know, at one point I was a jogger with one, in fact, Kim Clark and I used to jog together all the time oh, yeah. along the Charles <laughs> River in Boston oh, cool. at lunchtime. But uh, when my Achilles tendon was about to give out in London, I decided I better quit that. <laughs> so I took up swimming. Oh, cool. But I'd been a swimmer in college and I love swimming and so I swim every day, six days a week. But one of the things that brought this into sharp focus about these daily habits, there have been books written about it since, but I had three MBA students at Stanford, this was back in the early 80s, that I'd gotten to know well in their, I'd taught them in two separate courses uh, during their MBA program, and towards the end of the program, their two years, they came to me and they said, we wanna do a directed field study we want to study people who seem to have their act together, <laughs> the balanced life, if you will. They have a happy family. They're successful in business. Uh, 
and they're very much involved in their kids' lives. How do they do it? Hmm. I thought that's a worthwhile thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they had some, since it was California, we used uh, people in Northern California. They came up with half a dozen names. I gave them some more names. Now, they didn't know this, but three of the 10 were LDS because they were very successful people that had MBAs and that, yeah, their life looked really good. And so they went out and interviewed these people. And then they wrote up what they found. And they found some very interesting things. One is that the competition for your time never goes away. There are always going to be competing things. They also found that you have to have a single calendar. You can't have two calendars, one for business and one for family. Mm -hmm. And you have to recognize that the lead time on family activities is very different than the lead time on business activities. Hmm. So you need to make sure you block out time, even if you don't know what the family activity is going to be, or else you won't have time to do it oh, yeah. when you need to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, whether it's a soccer game or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. And the other thing they found is that um, these people limited taking their work home. They had times of the day that they did no work. And now, cell phones weren't prevalent yeah, then. Yeah, maybe easier in the 80s. It but was easier in the 80s. The principle still rings true. the principle still yeah. applies. Yeah. And, and they came up with, I think, a fairly sound set of principles. And now, you know, books have been written about this, and some of them are very good. But I thought it was interesting that the daily habits that keep you on the right track are essential. Yeah. And it starts with prayer, you know, activity in the church, serving in the church, uh, daily scripture study. And, but it also includes exercise, time with family, time with spouse. And you could think of it as, yeah, that's going to block out a fair amount of your time. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you've got to make that time because the other things will encroach on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you can still be successful as you make those things sure. a priority. Right? Yeah. 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 And, and it sounds like, I mean, it's obviously a very proactive thing you have to do. You don't just magically don't fall into yeah, it. Yes. Fall into <laughs> this. Oh, I'm going to have an extra hour. Maybe I'll read the scriptures, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so being intentional about then the lead time. I love that principle is you can't. It's not apples to apples with business right. commitments and family commitments or spiritual commitments and so forth, right? Yeah. That's awesome. That's really good. And, and did they publish that, that, that study anywhere? No, they didn't publish it. Just we, a, they thought about it, but they decided, no, yeah. we're done. Yeah. Well, you, know, you get to the end of your MBA program and you say, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm out of here. That's right. That's right. Uh, the third principle you put is developing a consistent standard of performance for all activities. Yeah. So this has to do with... Uh, you know, we're all engaged in lots of different daily activities. Mm -hmm. And you can think about what's your standard of performance in those activities. And some people think they can vary the standard of performance. There's actually very good evidence that you can't. Hmm. That if you try to vary, so uh, I'll just give you a simple one in safety. Mm -hmm. So if you want your workers to be safe in their habits, they have to be safe in their habits at home and in all they do. Oh, you cannot compartmentalize and say, 
here's the standard for this, and I've got a different standard for this other activity. Hmm. That's actually a very sound principle to keep in mind, because if excellence, for example, you know, I happen to believe that excellence is important, that the Lord wants us to be our best selves, but that means you gotta be your best self whether you're, in the old days, we called it home teaching, but ministering, uh -huh, uh -huh. whether you're teaching a class, giving a talk. So preparation is how you become excellent. Uh -huh. You prepare, and then, because then you can do it to the best of your ability. Now, that, that's, for me, that's a natural thing to think about, but that's not how everybody thinks yeah. about it. And you can think about honesty. Am I honest in all my dealings, or I'm more honest in these dealings than those dealings? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It's, it's that kind of thing. But this idea that uh, you need to be consistent. In fact, it's very interesting because that's where the word integrity comes from. The word integrity comes from integer, which means whole or complete, undivided. And uh, the church, this used to be something you could find lots of conference talks about, huh. honesty and yeah, integrity. Yeah, yeah. You don't hear as much about it now. Elder Bednar's talked about it a couple of times, but it's a very fundamental principle, but it's one of these things about a standard of performance. Are you gonna be honest in all you do? Yeah. You know, what's it worth to compromise your honesty? Would you ever do it? Why? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I love just thinking that if you're maybe uh, pushing the envelope in the context of your business or professional life, uh, you're very likely to to do that elsewhere, even in your spiritual life. Or, right, right. Yeah, um, and and it sort of connects to your your former principle of of just the daily habits and whatnot. Sometimes we bog ourselves down with so much to do, so many priorities that yes. there's no priorities, right? right. And right. when we do that, you can't perform at that level of excellence because there's just so much, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 You got to cut stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really helpful. Anything else around that principle that uh, you haven't mentioned? Well, one of the things, for example, we, we decided as a faculty member, I said, we need to take vacations in the summer because I could get the time off. Uh -huh. And we decided every other year we're gonna go on a three to five week vacation. Now, not everybody can do that, but in our circumstances, I said, look, we can do that. Mm -hmm. Let's just plan it. So we would have planning meetings. We'd give assignments to each child, read about the places we were gonna go and then make a report. Uh, and it was exciting. And one of the things we discovered, we. We never took a cell phone. We never did any of that. Uh -huh. So it took about a week for the kids to realize, oh, it's just me and my family. I don't have to worry about my friends. I don't have to wonder what I'm missing. And it was fabulous. Wow. We, had, we went to Australia. We went to Europe a couple of times. We went to uh, Alaska. We did all sorts of things, and we just loved it. Uh, another thing I did, again, to the same standard was because I had to travel a lot for both research and consulting and all sorts of activities on behalf of the university, I decided that once a year I was going to take each child, and we have five kids, on a business trip. Hmm. And now I'd pick the trip 
because it had to be a trip where I wasn't working all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, if I, if I had to give a talk or something, perfect, you know, and I'd get somebody to watch them because we had friends scattered around the country and things, and they loved it, you know, and even two of the daughters decided they were going to combine their trip because they wanted to go to Asia with me. Oh, cool. And we went to Hong Kong and Tokyo, and it was spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but those you can do those kind of things, but it's these are habits. So our family thinks, oh, yeah, we did Saturday work projects. That's a habit. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> we always did Saturday work projects. And then we played Saturday afternoon. Yeah. You know, as a family, we'd go to a football game or we'd go biking. We do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. No, I love that. That even with uh, aiming for excellence, even in the vacations or the times you right. unplug or yeah. the things that Make seem it more leisure and special. Yeah. 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 That, that's really helpful. Uh, the, the fourth principle you put down is prioritizing three types of goals. Walk us through that. Okay. So this one, uh, I, I really started thinking about this. One of our return missionaries after we'd been in London for three years wrote me and he said he had two simple questions he said how did you know what you you were going to do for the rest of your life and what goals did you set and I thought hmm I get asked about that from MBA students all the time Uh who aren't LDS you know because they'll come in and want advice about this job or that job and so forth Um, and I started thinking about goals, and I, so I went back and read what some of our leaders have told us in the church about goal, goals and goal setting, and that was very helpful, but I decided uh, that there are really three types of goals. The first type, which we've already talked a bit about, is identity. Mm-hmm. What are your real long-term, what are the things you care about that you hope they remember in your obituary. I mean, that's one of the ways people talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so what are, the, what are the things that you hope will matter most over your lifetime? And that's family, church service, you know, uh, worthy uh, priesthood holder, yeah. temple recommend holder. That's that kind of stuff. And that's really the discussion I'd had with Fred because mm-hmm. his identity was different than mine. Yeah. But my identity was tied to those long-term goals. So that's one type of goal is really long-term, who are you, what matters most to you. A second type of goal is really the one we were just talking about in terms of performance and how you do things. So, you know, people... You know, they they meant it perhaps a bit pejoratively to start with. In high school, I was a nerd, you know. Uh Uh (laughs) Yeah, because I got straight A's and people said, well, why are you, why do you even care? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I said, because I love, I love learning. I love studying. I still love learning. Yeah. So those goals had to do, the second type are really about when you do things, how do people characterize the way you do them? Now, it is why capable people get put on multiple committees and all Uh sorts of uh things, is because they get things done. They organize their time. They know how to lead. They know how to get the data. So that's a second type of goal. There's then a third type of goal, which I would characterize as temporal. They're the things that you see in your career and position. 
So it might be title, it might be pay, it might be, you know, if you're a professor, do you have tenure, do you have an endowed chair, do you have a, are you in a senior leadership position? You can think of what those are. The problem, and I've, you know, having talked with literally hundreds of MBAs about their goals, is that most people are much clearer on the third type than on the first two types. Hmm. They really haven't taken the time to anchor to those first two types of goals. And the problem is that you get lots of feedback on the third type, the temporal goals, mm -hmm. because they're easy to measure. Everybody, you know, you can tell people what your position is, where you work, you know, what your status is. They, they signal things. And that's where most of my MBA students, and I, unfortunately I've had a few that have gotten in trouble, where they get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. That that third type begins to dominate the other two. Mm. Not because they wanted it to, but because they get so much feedback on it. Yeah. And it becomes uh, a cause in and of itself. That is, I'm going to become a vice president by age, pick an age, 30, 35, because I should be. Uh -huh. and, and pretty soon they're making compromises that put at risk the first two types because of they're pursuing the yeah. third type. Now, you know, it's, it's interesting. I gave a talk in one of our mission reunions about this to our missionaries because I was a little, after this missionary had asked me this question, I thought, I ought to say something about this. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I think uh, is the case is that I never had clear goals of the third. Now, I, I knew I needed to get tenure to have a permanent position somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I actually never thought of it as it needs to happen by a certain time or some of those kind of things. And that's why, I mean, my colleagues at Stanford, were, at Harvard, were shocked when I took this position at Stanford because it was... It was tenured, but it was an associate professor, which meant I still needed to become a full professor. Mm. And I'd gone around and asked all my colleagues at Harvard, I said, any advice? And all but one of them had said, now these were people that were tenured at Harvard, all but one of them had said, I don't think he sh should do it because it'll show a lack of commitment to Harvard. Now that. I didn't have a goal of the third type that said I had to be at Harvard. Mm. I said, I don't, th I'll be fine if I'm at Stanford. Why do, why do I care if it hurts my chances at Harvard? Yeah. But in their mind, I mean, Harvard was. In their was mind, the Harvard was number yeah. one. Yeah. And that's where they thought, they couldn't imagine that somebody would leave there after being there so long and, and go to Stanford. And Stanford, back in those days, was still viewed much more as a regional school, oh, okay. a very good school, but a regional school, whereas Harvard was the international player. Uh -huh. And, but one of my colleagues said a very interesting thing. He said, and I'd written some things with him, so I knew him really well. He said, Steve, here's what I think. You go to Stanford, get tenure, do well, and Harvard will die to have you back. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I thought, 
Well, then I've got the best of both worlds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I don't have to come back if I don't want to come back. Uh-huh. And so, so, and sure enough, that is what happened is that, you know, because I knew the Harvard guys, in the end, that's, they hired me back. I never had to go through the process and all of this. Yeah. Because they knew me and they said, yeah, we like what you do. Yeah. We like the fact you've been at Stanford. That's fine. It brings more variety. And that's how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's great. And, and one thing that stood out to me, you know, considering these three uh, areas of goals of, you know, identity, performance, and temporal, if you focus on the temporal, it taints the, the others, right? The, the right. identity, soon you think, Gets well, my identity, my yeah. identity is vice president of such as, when yeah. it's like, no, 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 that's just no, a No, that's a role. not your identity. That's, that's a, a role. role. Yeah. 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 And so then it really screws up everything else, yeah, right? For sure. And, and so in practice, I mean, do you, you know, with your missionaries or whatnot, do you encourage them to sit down and, and think about these, all, all these, these three I, areas as they set goals, yeah. right? So I actually encourage them to write down the first two types. Mm-hmm. You can, and you only get to do a max of six okay. on each of the, So what is your identity? Name six things. Make them your top six. Uh-huh. But then you're going to have to revisit these regularly. Because you've got to remind yourself that that's really who you are, uh-huh. okay? Most people are, can only come up with three or four of the second type because, or else they become trivial because they're, they're not going to spend much time on the other stuff. So excellence is a great one. Honesty is a great one. And they're actually, if people think about somebody they really admire that they know really well, like a dad or a mom or a grandparent, mm-hmm. it's almost always the things they name are in the second category mm. because they're loving and kind, because they're diligent, because they're honorable. could be anything. Yeah. So coming up with a handful of those, and again, check yourself periodically to say, how am I doing on these? Yeah. And then the third one, don't have very many of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and don't put time limits on them. Gotcha. Because yeah. the time limits are going to get you in trouble. You'll make compromises if you try and force the timing. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. You've got to speed this up. You yeah. know, you got to. Yeah, yeah. That, that the 40 birth And ambitious people, number three gets in the way. Yeah. The more ambitious you are, the more likely three could be a challenge. Yeah. And I'm always, this is my own personal life, you know, I'm almost 40, but uh, I've just noticed that sometimes I feel like, oh, I gotta, I gotta make sure I get to this point in certain life, but in a certain stage of life, but I've just realized how, how long and how much time I really do have. You know, yeah. it's, it, sometimes it feels like a year goes by so fast, but a decade is, there's so much time in that decade. Yeah, you know? so much. So, yeah. Um, just put it in the Lord's hands and he'll, he'll work he'll out the it. timeline. Right? He'll make it work. That's awesome. That's really helpful really helpful the fifth principle is a charity as personal guide in all relationships so i actually spoke on charity recently uh, i'm on a high council and that was the assignment was uh-huh. to speak on charity and i one of the things i discovered is well wait a minute that's the savior's uh message life and mission mm. so that's what he taught that's how we dealt with other people. And that's what the atonement's all about. Yeah. And I thought, hmm, 
how does that work in my life? You know, do I let charity guide my relationships? Well, this came into really sharp focus many years ago. I was a scoutmaster. This was before I was a bishop or anything else. <laughs> you paid your dues to this, <laughs> that calling, right? <laughs> and my dad had been a scoutmaster for 18 years, and I thought, I do understand bo boys that age. Yeah. I understand what they need. And, and we had great activities and stuff. But uh, one of the activities is we taught the boys in Boston how to ski. So we took them to a ski resort on a Friday night and then spent all day Saturday skiing and then came home. And, it, you know, you have to go to New Hampshire or Maine, and so it's a couple hours away. And we'd gotten a late start, and I had a couple of dads with me, and we had a dozen boys. And we're all in this one condominium sleeping in sleeping bags on the floor. And we didn't, we didn't really get our dinner done and everything else. It must have been 11 o'clock when we went to bed. <laughs> and at 2 o'clock, everybody's still awake. And I had had a really <laughs> tough week, and I was frustrated. And uh, I probably was a little more stern with one of the scouts. I'll just call him uh, Sam. That's not his real name. But uh -huh. I thought, this guy causes me more grief and he was clearly the one that was getting everybody to stay awake. Uh -huh. And I thought, they're going to be dead skiing. And, you know, skiing in New England, you ski on ice, so you got to be on your game uh -huh. when you uh -huh. learn to ski on ice. And I thought, this isn't going to work. But about 3 o'clock, they were finally all asleep. And, you know, they, the dads were wrecked the next morning. Uh -huh. We'd only had four hours sleep, and we'd worked all week. And... But the boys, it didn't seem to bother them much. And we taught them how to ski, and they did all right. And nobody broke a bone. Nobody got hurt. <laughs> you know, as a scoutmaster, you're yeah, grateful when that happens. <laughs> that's for sure. You come home from a trip. And, uh, but on Monday, I'm out jogging with Kim Clark, good friend. And he said, how did the scout trip go? And I said, well, you know, it was okay, but... It was really frustrating, I said, and I, I described uh, Sam a bit. Now, Sam is the same scout who put an aerosol can the month earlier in a campfire to see if it would explode, <laughs> which it did, and the f <laughs> fortunately, nobody got hurt then either. Yeah, we've all uh, had a Sam in our scout troop. We've all had yeah. a Sam. And, and, I, and he said, well, let me ask you two questions. The first question was, he says, do you love him? Speaking of Sam. And I said, yeah, I think so. He said, does he know it? Mm. I said, hmm, probably not right now. And I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. Do you love him and do you, does he know it? I thought, that's a good standard. So the next, Sam had about 15 more months in the troop. And I thought, I'm going to work on that. Sam will be my test case. Yeah. And I worked on it. And, you know, sometimes with boys like that, you have no idea whether you're getting through or not. And then about uh, five years later, the ward had been split. Sam's and his mom are no longer in our ward. And she's up giving a talk while I'm standing in the foyer waiting to see the stake president. And she, she starts talking about a conversation she'd overheard her son have just recently. He's now 18. 
He's with an 18-year-old friend. They're just about to graduate from high school, and the friend says, basically, um, you know, anybody over 21 doesn't understand us at all. Hmm. You can't trust them. They don't know what they're talking about. Do you agree? And Sam says, yeah, I think I generally do agree. Except there was one guy <laughs> wow. that I really think understood me and trusted me. And that was my scoutmaster. I thought, wow, yeah. where did that come from? Yeah, wow. But, you know, that's one of those tender mercies that you would never know. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's the one case where he can say, yeah, somebody really cared about me and tried to understand me. Yeah. Man, that goes so far. And, and even in the professional uh, context of, you know, the people you work with or the people that report to you, do you love them and do they yeah. know it? Right. Yeah. And that really, it's, it's like a paradigm shift, right? Yeah. You, you approach everything differently from that point forward. In fact, I always make it a point. I invest in lots of my, they're called search funds, but they're former students in many cases um, because I'm really interested in helping them if I can. And I always make sure I ask them about how they're doing. Are they enjoying it? Uh, you know, is life, is this the life they have in mind? You know, and I had one recently who I said, you need to move to a place where you can meet somebody to marry. Because hmm. he really would like to get married. He's 30, but he's been working so hard in this business and he's been very successful in it but he's in a location where he's not gonna meet anybody. I said, move, work from a distance. Yeah. You know, get on a plane more. <laughs> but it's worth it if you f might find somebody that you'd really care about. Yeah. But I think the more you treat people that kind of way, the, where, where charity really guides your relationships, yeah. that makes a difference. Ah, oh, that's helpful, really helpful. Uh, last principle is trust in the Lord so that you you can be trusted by him. <laughs> Great principle. Well, you know, we've we've all been taught and our leaders are always reminding us that if you want more promptings of the Holy Ghost, you better follow the ones you're getting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, over my lifetime, in fact, I've got a little book I'm working on for my grandkids uh, called Tender Mercies. But it's really about promptings that have made a real difference. Hmm. One of those, we had a, while we were in London, we had invested in, with a partner in the Riverton Livestock Auction. Now we only did it because he was the son of a friend. And I really liked the friend, he'd been the stake president and he was a really good guy. And I thought, you know, his son, I, I don't know him quite as well, but this will be fine because he's in it too. Well, it turned out not to be fine. <laughs> It turned out that uh, oh. this guy started kiting checks and we, he really got into hot water with Wells Fargo Bank. Well, it turned out that I was the lead investor, outside investor. So I end up, I'm in the basement of the Wells Fargo Bank in Riverton, right after our mission, trying to sort things out. And I've got an accountant and a lawyer with me that I brought with me because I needed some advice. And they're saying, put this guy in jail. He's a crook. Well, I didn't really think he was a crook. I just thought he was 
made some very bad choices, and then he, con he perpetuated those bad choices by kiting checks. That's where you put money in one account, then move it to another account, and you're going back and forth, mm -hmm. and the bank thinks you have more money than you actually have because it's in some checking accounts. Right, yeah. But anyway, it, uh, we're standing in the basement, and I've got to decide, am I going to settle with the bank and resolve this, which would mean I was going to take ownership of the auction and then sell it, uh, or you know, am I going to fight it, send this guy to jail, and have the bank take part of the hit? <laughs> That was the decision. And I've got this. My lawyer wasn't quite sure that he was a crook. He knew he'd made bad, he had bad judgment. The accountant was absolutely convinced he was a crook. And I'm standing in the hallway there, and I've got to make a decision. And just like that, it couldn't have been more than five seconds. I thought, the thought went through my mind, a clear picture of, if I send him to jail and his family needs help, I'm going to be the person that's going to have to help him. Do I want to do that? I thought, nope. The Lord would have me do nothing and let the dad be in charge. Because he was a good dad. Yeah. And he was trying hard. He just had some weaknesses like we all do. Yeah. But I had this clear image that if you send him to jail, you're going to have to help because that's who you are. If you don't send him to jail, he can be in charge of his family and they'll be okay. And that's what I did. Wow. So I didn't send him to jail. Yeah. And, and recording those, those promptings and, and yeah. reflecting on them, how, how the Lord is guiding you, right? Yeah. It's inspiring. And I thought, I'm glad he did. Yeah. I'd hate to right. have made the wrong. But, it, you know, and we, when we came back from London after three years, and we knew we were going to spend two or three years at Harvard, we just bought a small house in the same area we'd lived in, in Belmont. And after eight months, I was standing in the foyer of the chapel again, same chapel, uh -huh. and I heard a voice. And the voice said, you need to move. I said, I actually looked around thinking. <laughs> Is there a realtor? But, but then, I, then I realized that, no, no. Why would I need to move? I can't imagine why I need to move. We bought this small house. I had no idea. And so that day going back home, I drove by our old house, which we'd sold before we went to London. And there across the street is a house for sale. And I, th I remember thinking, I wonder if that's the house we're supposed to buy. Why, are, why am I going to move? I don't want to yeah. move. It's only going to be another year or two. That's not a good investment. Well, as, as uh, the Lord would have it, about two weeks later, I said to my wife, we were going to a wedding of one of our missionaries in the Nauvoo Temple, I said, as we were driving, what would you just think if I told you that we needed to move? She said, why? I said, I don't know why, but we need to move. I said, I'll tell you what. So I told her what had happened, and she said, I think we need to move. 
I said, I don't know where though. I said, why don't you go look? She went and looked, she made an offer on a house. It got, somebody made a higher offer, we didn't get it. I said, go look at this house on our old street, right across the street. She went and looked, we bought it. Huh. In September, we'd been away for a month in the summer. We came back, the very first day she goes to the house immediately next door, and a lady lived there that she knew from having walked their dogs together, you know, five years earlier. Uh -huh. And she said, how are you doing? And the neighbor said, we've been waiting for you. Waiting for us? She said, my daughter is dying of stomach cancer, but we knew you were gonna move in and we thought that would be a good thing. Turned out this lady who was 80, uh, her name was Barbara, had grown up in the church, but left the church when she was 18 and went east to school and had never gone back to church. Huh. Her daughter knew nothing about it except, so her daughter's in her mid 40s at the time. And she's the one with cancer? She's got stomach cancer, uh -huh. she's dying. She's, they've made the living room into a, kind of a bedroom study kind of thing. Yeah. She can still get around. And, and the daughter, Margaret, the first thing my wife said to her, she said, would she like a priesthood blessing? Now the mother hadn't seen anybody give a priesthood blessing in 60 years. Wow. And, but she said, yes, I know she would. So the next night I got, you know, one of the, the members of our state to join me. And the community, the LDS community kind of knew this girl that was dying of stomach cancer somewhat because she taught trumpet to half a dozen LDS kids mm. in high school. So we gave her a blessing. It turned out she, we started teaching her. She joined the church in November. Uh, in February, she died. Happier than she'd been in her life. Wow. I thought, good thing we moved. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But we, it wouldn't have happened had we not lived next to her. Yeah. 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 And again, trusting in the Lord trust so in he the can Lord. trust you, yeah. right? So he can trust you. Wow. Well, Steve, this has been phenomenal. Uh, I, I think I'm going to start the petition that we need a Steve Wilwright podcast, I'm just saying, but we'll see about we that. We don't. <laughs> um, any, any principle or thought that we haven't covered before we wrap up that, or, uh, and then I got one more question for you. No, I mean, uh, obviously identity is at the very heart of it. That's why I yeah. put that one first, yeah, because yeah. as long as you remember who you are and why you're here, meaning here on earth, you know, then the, the Lord's provided enough guidance that we can get the other things right yeah. if we listen to him and seek his help. Yeah. And he will give the help and you'll be better. My life's been much better than I would ever have planned for myself. I would never have planned the life I've had. Yeah, yeah. But I'm grateful, you know? Yeah. Grateful that my wife, that we're in it together and that she supports me and we got five wonderful kids and it's terrific. Life yeah. is good. And again, going back to, you know, as you make that list of maybe those six identities 
that you have. Uh, as you go come back to that, I would imagine suddenly the, the Lord starts to reveal what your true identity is. Right. right? And yeah. it's more than you could have ever it's much more. thought yeah. of yeah. yourself, right? Yeah, for that's sure. awesome. Yeah. Well, Steve, last question I have for you is if you're in a room full of MBA students or alumni and, and maybe they're just, they're in the thick of it, right? And they're, they're <laughs> discouraged and late nights or, you know, they're, they're working really hard. Uh, what final advice or encouragement would you, would you give them? Pray. <laughs> Look, the Lord, the Lord will help us in any worthy cause we're involved in. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But we have to do our part. But then we need to make sure that the Lord, I mean, my favorite scripture is Proverbs 3 and 5. Trust in the Lord and lean not to thine own understanding and acknowledge him in all things and he'll direct your paths. Well, the essence of that is if you overmanage your life and if you try and do too much of it yourself, he's not going to have a chance to direct you because you're going to be too busy to even hear the answer to the prayer. So don't be afraid to pray and then be quiet, be still and listen because the Lord will then help you work it out. Doesn't mean that you won't have lots of challenges and some things won't go the way you hoped. So you can't pray for the outcome. You can pray for his inspiration and guidance, and then you'll do fine. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.